0: Well, good morning, beloved saints in the Lord. For those of you who don't remember me, it's been a while. I'm Bill Smith. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here in New Hope Chapel. It's good to be back home in this church with this family here that I love and who I know loves me. I've been thinking a lot about our topic today as I traveled around the world to India and to Philippines and to Okinawa. It's been a few years since I've done this kind of traveling. Seemed to be, I remember it being a little bit easier because that, that might have been I was younger back then. Um, not, a, not a whole lot has changed. I'm still impressed by how many people there are on this planet. I mean, there's just masses and masses of people. What was interesting about these past three weeks as I was thinking about the topic for today's sermon, I was given several opportunities to practice this idea of contentment. I've noticed this uh, in the past, and I'm assuming the other teachers have too, that when you're preparing to do a sermon on a particular topic, the Lord seems to bring you into a lot of situations and opportunities where you get to practice the very thing you're going to be talking about, right? And so since that it finally dawned on me, I got a lot of opportunities to practice contentment on this past trip, and I realized that I should let Steve know right now that if you need somebody to talk on that passage that says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, I'm going to pass on that passage. Uh, I'll let Scott do that one. (laughs) I really don't find this travel really all that glamorous, by the way. Everybody's oh, you're here. Basically, I see the insides of airplanes and hotel rooms and office buildings. I don't really get to be out that much, partly because I'm really not that adventurous. I think other people would get more from it than I do. What seems to have the most impact on me, actually, is the ride to and from the airport or from the hotel to the office building, looking out the windows at this masses of of humanity and the way they interact, the way they drive their cars so close together. I think we're always going to be hit, but somehow we never do. Uh, In the the Philippines, it was a little bit better than India. In India, uh, the public transportation there, it's sort of interesting, they, they have a lot of these little jitneys or jutneys or whatever they call them. They're basically little motorcycles that have been converted in some way and they have like a cab in the back sort of kind of thing. It's, it's hard to explain it. Uh, generally, I would think maybe the one person in the front driving and then two people in the back, but I often saw six people jammed into these things. They have no windows on them. Many of them have no doors. The air is dusty and it's hot. And I'm sitting inside my air-conditioned Toyota van practicing contentment as we drive through the masses of people. I'd often be thankful, though, for my transportation and glad that I was not in that situation where I could see people were living in unairconditioned conditioned homes with corrugated tin roofs jammed all together by the hundreds and thousands. No running water, electricity, most likely. I often wondered if this, the, the nice people who were waiting on me hand and foot at the hotel were the same people that rode back in these dangerous death traps and staying in these these homes by the water somewhere. Sometimes I'd feel sorry for them, and then other times I'm wondering if they felt sorry for me. (laughs) Look at that poor guy, getting all dressed up, trying to show his value, working hard to make a buck so he can keep living in his big house, in his fancy car, and keeping his trophy wife. (laughs) And I wondered if I might become... (laughs) I might become like Paul and learn to be content someday. So in continuing on our series on signs of maturity in Christ, we're going to talk a bit about contentment. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you yet again, your children, coming to your feet, sitting at the foot of your throne, desperate to know more about you, so that we become more trusting of you, more able to depend and rely on you for all of our needs. We seek to learn contentment in you. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our reference point today is Paul's letter to the Philippians. A lot of you, I'm sure everybody has read a lot of Paul's letters. And when you read his letters, you kind of get the impression that he was writing because he found out some stuff and wasn't too happy about it. I'm wondering if we got a letter to our church today from Paul, we'd be like, oh great, a letter from Paul. Or we'd be like, a letter from Paul. Um, yeah, We'll get to that a little later. <laughs> I don't know if you really want to read that. It's like getting a letter from the IRS, right? It can't be good news. you know. It's from Paul, after all. What have we done wrong now? But if we were the Philippians, uh, we would be rejoicing. This letter kind of stands out unique in that he really doesn't chastise them for really anything, just a small encouragement to ask uh, Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's it. The rest of it's really complimentary. It's in Philippians we learn from Paul that this idea of contentment is something that's learned. It's the idea of maturing in Christ that we would gradually, over time, continue and increase in our ability to practice or to be content. In Philippians 4.11, Paul says, not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Earlier, we took a look at the fruits of the Spirit, and that we already have all of them. And uh, we simply allow them to grow. We could also talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We don't have all of them, but they're unique to each believer. We cannot earn them. We cannot learn them. We can just exercise them. But when it comes to contentment, contentment is something that we can cultivate. It's something we can develop. It's something we can acquire over time. The context of this verse is where Paul is thanking them for their gifts. In verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. What Paul is talking about here, if you go back and read through Acts and you kind of connect this together, the Philippians had always supported Paul, and they always gathered gifts for him of some sort, probably money, but that they hadn't been able to send it to him for some while, simply because they couldn't find him. (laughs) They lost track of him. He left no real forwarding addresses. (laughs) And when they finally found out where he was, they were able to send everything that they had been saving up to him. And that's what he's talking about, is that you finally had the opportunity to show it. They always wanted to. They just lost track of him. Then he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do it all, I can do all this through Him who strengthens me. Just a quick comment on that verse. A lot of people use that, I use that for a long time, probably incorrectly. (laughs) A lot of people use that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when they're getting ready to go for a job interview or they're trying to win a football game or something like that. This verse, in this context, is referring simply to this. Whether I have plenty or I have nothing, I can still do that. I can still live in that situation. That's what he's really referring to, is whether we have what we need or we don't. I can do all this. This is referring to want or need. So you notice Paul is not challenging the Philippians to be more content. He makes very few challenges in this letter. He's simply saying he has learned to be content no matter what the external circumstances are. And the challenge we have here in talking about this idea of contentment by itself is that we might come away thinking God is wanting us to become complacent. Perhaps we are supposed to have a sort of any effort is good enough attitude. One thing Paul was not was complacent. When we first meet Paul, we clearly see a type A kind of guy, right? A doer, a shaker, a mover of things. He challenged Peter. He calls him out for wanting to be liked. He has a run-in with Barnabas related to an earlier failing of John Mark. Paul and Barnabas went head to head, and Paul would not concede, so they parted ways, never to see each other again. He was a fully committed Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, with passion and zeal, a vicious persecutor of the Christians, so committed to persecuting Christians, that he approved of the stoning execution of Stephen, even though by Jewish law it was illegal for Jews to execute anyone. See, initially, Paul was dependent on his outward circumstances for his inward contentment. Paul was a big fan of outward behaviors, in his case following the law, to obtain internal commitment. Paul was not at all complacent. That same passion that he had and that zeal was what God used to shape Paul for his purpose. And along the way, Paul learns this idea of contentment. But contentment in and of itself is insufficient. In the letter to Timothy, Paul points out that contentment should be combined with godliness. 1 Timothy 6-11 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we were brought into this world, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There are a lot of religions, a lot of philosophies, a lot of lifestyles that work towards contentment. They're trying to find inner peace. And meditation, yoga, and all those kind of things. I'm not saying they're bad, but part of that is to try to find a way to get inner peace. I've tried that yoga, and they say to get in this position, and then they say relax your mind, and all I'm trying to do is just stand up, okay? (laughs) So, I don't get this whole idea of how this is supposed to be relaxing. All that is essentially a self centered philosophy that I have somehow achieved nirvana. Paul isn't talking about that. To understand this context, we need to remember who Paul was and the work he was doing. Paul was proclaiming the gospel, he was participating in building the kingdom of God, he was telling people about the Savior of all mankind. So in this context, Paul is encouraging us to know that to the extent we are also involved in the work of the kingdom of God, we really can't expect God to always ensure we are well off financially. At the same time, Paul is also telling us that God will ensure we will always be provided for by His hand, not ours, as we do the work that He's called us to do. We can take this idea of godliness with contentment in another way. We could say, well, what is godliness without contentment? well, if godliness with contentment is great gain, godliness without contentment might be great loss. In fact, we were talking about that a little bit this morning, about those people who become very righteous, very godly. I think we've been around those people, very godly people, and in their, their sense of righteousness kind of come across as angry or judgmental towards others. For when Paul talks about godliness, he's not talking about proper behavior. He's talking about living a life, in and centered around Jesus. You see, godliness is a person. So contentment is not complacency. We can be content with our external circumstances, yet we can be discontent with the spiritual circumstances of those who are lost. That was what Paul was like. Tim Keller recently tweeted, I can't believe I'm using the word tweeted in a sermon, Times are a-changing, aren't they? (laughs) The the security of Jesus' love enables me to need less and to love more. It is good for us to have as a goal of maturity to learn commitment, is it not? Contentment. Another way to think of contentment is like this. Having contentment is a way of acknowledging that you believe God is who He is and He's going to do what He said He's going to do. You can trust Him. We are saying, I have exactly what God knows I need, and therefore I want nothing more. Jeremy Burroughs, a 17th century uh, Puritan preacher, I think, Steve, you knew him, didn't you? Uh, described contentment... Yeah, pers- yeah <laughs> personal friend of mine. Um, he, he said, uh, he called contentment a rare jewel for the Christian. He asks, how can you find joy in what God gives you, especially when it is less than you had before? He then suggests some wisdom to us. He says, a Christian comes to contentment, not so much by way of addition, but as by way of subtraction. Contentment does not come by adding to what you have, but by subtracting from what you desire. The world says you will find contentment when your possessions rise to meet the level of your desires. The Christian has another way to contentment. That is, the Christian can bring their desires down to their possessions. In other words, I choose to desire exactly what I already have, and now I'm satisfied, now I'm content. You see, my motivations are no longer driven by uh, finances or material possessions. I no longer look for inner comfort from these external sources. The world only provides dissatisfaction. It will never fully satisfy. God wants us to look to Him for our sense of comfort. When we look towards the world, towards money, material possessions, to provide us comfort, the best we can do is become less and less dissatisfied. We never really become satisfied. It's that move towards less dissatisfaction that is addictive, it's deceptive, it's tricky. The enemy is so clever at putting us, letting us get right up close to the sense of satisfaction. And that sen- sense of satisfaction will last a minute or two. But then what happens? It goes away. I'm always amazed when there's like the World Series or a Super Bowl and everybody, hey, we finally won. And like the very next day, what are they talking about? Next season. You know? <laughs> that lasted a whole day. <laughs> if that. Okay. So. The idea here is that the uh, contentment is really not a new thing. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, is about practicing contentment. Coveting, by default, removes thankfulness. God desires us. His very first command points out the relationship between his desire for us to depend on him and how coveting prevents us from experiencing this relationship. He says in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth, below or in the water under the earth. So this phrase, you shall have no other gods before me, in Exodus 20, is tucked right in between the fact that God brought us out of slavery, in our sense, our slavery to sin, and the command not to make any idols. Notice God doesn't say he helped us get out of slavery. He didn't help us to help ourselves. He freed us from slavery to our sin. He did it himself. So when he says we should have no other gods before him, he follows that idea with the idea of making idols. Idols are things we can see, we can touch, we can feel, we can possess them. We make them ourselves. We don't even need God's help to make those idols. In 2 Corinthians 4, it tells us that Satan is the god of this world. Satan does not own the world. The Lord owns the world. But he has a huge influence over the people here, our enemy. And there's any one area where Satan is working overtime to keep us from growing in our dependence on God is this idea of contentment. I think that's why Burroughs called it the rare jewel. I mean, just think of the catastrophic results from Satan's point of view if Christians all over the world started just becoming more and more dependent on God, more secure in God's love, and less dependent on stuff for contentment. The world's marketing system is the key tool he uses, isn't it? The marketers are constantly bombarding us nonstop with enticements to get stuff. Just walking through the airport in Korea, in Incheon, I started taking videos to send to Josh. Look at the marketing that they go on here. But all marketing is focused on one thing, and that is to create a sense of anxiety or discontent. And that can only be relieved by buying this product or this service. They even make the most ludicrous connections between their product and our happiness. If you have this car, you'll have that same smug smile or or that same happy family in the car, right? I have to have that car. Look how happy the family is. My family... Now, your family will be just as screwed up as it was before, but they'll be in a nice car. If you use this hair product, this makeup, this perfume, or these clothes, you'll look just like her and be pursued by a man that looks just like him. Get this electronic device and you'll be so much more productive, which will help you get promoted and then get more money so you can get more stuff. I'm always amazed by the number of people who come into celebrity status. I immediately start feeling bad for them. Making all the big money, having it all, and then proceed to kill themselves with drugs and alcohol. Recently I was reading about a series of people who came into celebrity for a bit and then committed suicide when they fell out of the spotlight. They lacked contentment. Paul says it's a secret. He learned the secret. And I think he's already revealed the secret back earlier in that chapter in Philippians 4. And I I think there's six things that he says we can choose to do to grow in our sense of contentment, to rejoice. To be calm, be gentle, pray, and be thankful, and set our minds. So earlier back in the, fourth, uh, in the fourth chapter, in the fourth verse, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And most everybody will know what he says next. I'll say it again. <laughs> in case you missed it. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be made evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... By prayer and petition, with Thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. That little verse there is like the previous one, "I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me," and we often talk about, you know, the peace of God transcends all understanding, but it's based upon the previous verses. <laughs> if you do those things, then you get the peace of God. One of my favorite movies is Caddyshack, and one of my favorite lines is when Bill Murray's character, Carl Spackler, finally understands the head greenskeeper who has a very strong Scottish accent. And he realizes he's telling him to kill all the gophers, not all the golfers. <laughs> and when he realizes that, he says, Yeah, hey, we can do that. We don't even need a reason. We can do that. Rejoice in the Lord, and again, I will say, Rejoice. We can do that. We don't even need a reason. That's a choice we can make. It's a sign of maturity in Christ. When we start rejoicing in the Lord, even when there doesn't appear to be a reason, gentleness. Right after he talks about rejoicing, he says, let your gentleness be shown to everyone. I had to think about that for a second. It seemed out of place, but I'm not allowed to cross it out or to cut it out like Thomas Jefferson would do. So I looked up the opposite of rejoice, and I found discontent and sad. And I realized people who are discontent and sad, depressed, and filled with anger and hate are also generally not gentle or patient with others, are they? They seem to like to share their content with others. I've lost count of how many plane flights I've made in the past three weeks. But I will tell you that getting off the plane is yet another opportunity for me to practice content or to be frustrated and depressed. I remember one flight where I watched from a few rows back this lady very slowly and deliberately taking all the time in the world to collect her stuff in order to get off the plane. I'm going to be open with you. In my head, I'm thinking, oh, take your time, we'll all wait. We're not worried about missing our connecting flight. Welcome to Captain Me, planet. That's what I'm thinking. But then my thoughts were interrupted by another thought. And that thought was this, Bill, rejoice, you landed safely. What if you were to find out this lady is in great physical pain? That's why maybe she's moving so slowly. What if that was you? Would you be content? So I chose contentment and I relaxed. Really wasn't going to be that long anyway. All I was going to do was get in and stand outside for a while waiting for a ride. <laughs> what am I getting so upset about? Rejoice always, no matter what, always produces gentleness and compassion for others. Then he tells us, remember, the Lord is near. Do you ever have those thoughts? You ever choose to think that the Lord is near? He sees everything and hears everything that's going on. Look, if he's abiding in you, then he's abiding in you all the time. We don't have to start praying to get his attention. We're like a firstborn child to him. For those who've had children, remember the firstborn child, how much attention you paid to them? The others, you weren't ever sure where they were at, but that firstborn child, <laughs> that firstborn child, I mean, not a, not a grimace, a sound, a movement, a facial expression went past your attention. That's what we're like to the Lord. We're like a firstborn child to Him. Very important, He's always watching. He's near. Practice bringing to your mind, the Lord is near. All oh, contentment will follow. Then he says, stay calm. Don't be anxious. Relax. <sighs> pray. In any and every situation, pray with thanksgiving, bringing your request to God. The Lord impressed upon me recently how powerful our prayers are, both in heaven and on how they affect things on earth. And the idea was, think about an atomic bomb when you pray. The real effect of the atomic bomb is the ripples afterwards, (laughs) that it affects so many things around it. Pray even though you don't feel anything in the moment. Things are happening. Powerful things that we can't see right now are happening, and especially pray with thanksgiving. I'll always remember something that someone said. I don't remember who it was. I apologize it was one of you. But someone said, well, if you're not thankful for what you have now, why would God give you more things to be unthankful for? You probably wouldn't. Yeah, probably wouldn't do that. So rejoice, be gentle, stay calm, pray, be thankful. And guess what happens next? The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus' contentment. Practice, practice, practice these things because as we know, practice makes... Progress. (laughs) Some of you remembered. (laughs) We can reprogram our heart with our mind. He says in the 8th verse of Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We can do that. We don't even need a reason. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Notice he says the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. Did you know we can't set our hearts? We can't make choices in our hearts. If we could directly influence our heart and make choices there, that means we'd be able to digest our breakfast more quickly. Go ahead and do that. You can't just sits there in the heart. All our beliefs sit there in our heart. Everything flows from the heart, according to Proverbs. We can and do program our hearts through the act of setting our mind on things. Anything we repeatedly think becomes an instruction for the heart to carry out. Unfortunately, anything we think on can get into the heart, even things we shouldn't think about, things that aren't true about us or God or other people. Those can become beliefs in the heart. That's why Paul provides this set of instructions about how to think and what to think about. Again, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. I mean, there's a lot of things we're commanded to do in Scripture that seem almost impossible, aren't there? Or at least extremely difficult. But here's one that's actually not that hard to do. Think on those things. Uh, The return on that investment is extremely high. Contentment. Peace. Christianity is a thinking man's game. Choose what you think on. We just can't be content. Oh, if we could. I mean, that would have been a short sermon. I'd get up, okay, today's lesson, be content. Bow your heads for the blessing. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. We have an enemy in a world system that's constantly attempting to steal our contentment. We're constantly receiving suggestions that material goods and money will bring peace and satisfaction. The truth is, the more you get, the less satisfied you'll become, but you'll never become truly satisfied with the world. You see, the enemy is working constantly to convince us we don't have enough. God has made sure that without him, we will never find peace, satisfaction, and contentment. As we grow in finding contentment, In God, he will stir the embers of our heart to reach out and love the lost. There's always balance with God. Jesus talked about contentment in Matthew 6. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap, ...or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire Each day has enough trouble of its own. Paul went through a lot to learn commitment, contentment. I know, I keep saying commitment, contentment. He said, He worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, exposed to death again and again five times, received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the open sea, constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, danger from fellow Jews, from the Gentiles, danger in the city, and the country, in danger at sea, and danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my own concern for all the churches. In Hebrews, we read, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus mentioned Solomon. Solomon, considered the wisest and richest man who ever lived. Even Solomon said, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth, is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. See, neither wealth nor poverty is going to bring about contentment. Only Jesus brings about contentment. And he longs for us to be satisfied with what he's provided. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape screw tape letters provides some insight into how our enemy is attempting to thwart us. We listen in as Screwtape, a demon, is advising his nephew Wormwood on how to distract the Christians. And he says to him, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, but we must keep them doing so. We produce this sense of ownership, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Let them think they own God, and therefore they'll think God owes them. So how to counter the enemy? To counter our enemy, we simply remind ourselves That all things were created by, through, and for Jesus. And that all things are held together in him. That means your body is not yours. Your house is not yours. Your car, your job, your clothes, your food, your pets, your tools, your books, your vacation home, your computer, your phone, your kids. None of that is yours. It's on loan to you from the Father, because Jesus wants you to have it. He wants to bless us. I'm reminded of the lady who focused all of her efforts to get her dream home. She worked long, hard hours, sacrificed everything in order to earn enough money to get her dream home, and she had finally achieved her goal. And she went directly from settlement, directly to her new house. And she sat down in the middle of the empty living room and waited, and waited, and waited and waited, and nothing happened. Her new house was empty, and her heart was still empty. And she began weeping. We can try to supply our own needs, but we will come up empty. And that's why Paul concludes Philippians 4 by saying, Our God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, My peace, I leave with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we seek this jewel of contentment in our lives. We choose to rejoice always. We choose to be gentle, to pray with thanksgiving. We choose to set our minds on everything that is good and worthy of notice. We pray that you continue to teach us how to be content in you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.